Well, good evening, church. Not good morning, maybe a strange time, but I imagine all of us have been waiting to get to Friday to hear in a triumphant way what the cross of Christ means to us as believers. You know, when I look at all those words that have just been written and sung, a lot of the time it's even hard for me to preach because they're just so rich and I can go home just after some of those songs. Amen. But if you would, please, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14. Yes, I am determined to finish John chapter 14. I think it was uh, Johnny who came in. He said, okay, where are we? Uh, John 19? I said, no, we're in John 14. I'm determined to finish it. And I know you're probably thinking, how are we going to get to the crucifixion of Christ from John chapter 14? But if you would just trust me, I promise we will get there. John chapter 14, I'm going to be reading verses 28 through 31. Jesus said, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray one last time. Our gracious God, we are so thankful for the gift of your word to show us, bring us back to that moment in time and eternity where Christ went to the cross willingly, submissively to the Father's will out of love for you and love for your church. Though we ask that you would, in this short time that we have, show us Jesus Christ. And that will be sufficient for us to lay hold of, to grow in Christ-likeness, to give us the peace that surpasses all understanding, we ask that you would be glorified and it would be all for our eternal good. We pray in Christ's name, amen. The cross is at the very heart of all that believers hold dear. One writer says that no event of time or eternity compares with the transcending significance of the death of Christ. Other important undertakings of God, such as the creation of the world, the incarnation of Christ, his resurrection, the second coming, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth become meaningless if Christ did not die. In the study of Christ and his sufferings and death, one is in truly a holy of holies, 
a mercy seat sprinkled with blood to which only the spirit-taught mind has access. In his death, Christ supremely revealed the holiness and righteousness of God as well as the love of God which prompted the sacrifice. In a similar way, the infinite wisdom of God is revealed as no human would ever have devised such a way of salvation and only an infinite God would be willing to sacrifice his own son. Amen. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I just got done finishing a biography on C.H. Spurgeon. And he wrote very many times of a deep depression he had faced in his life and in his own ministry for years. And you ask, well, what was it that he turned to often to try to help keep that depression at bay? In a sermon, he wrote, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and to seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all of my transgressions. The message of the cross isn't for believers just to consider once a year once a month, even once a week. All of us in the Christian life, it's been said that we are all facing trials. We're either going into a trial, we're either in a trial, or we're coming out of a trial. And what do we need to face those trials? Well, just like C.H. Spurgeon said, we need the peace-speaking blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to see that in our passage. Now, I'm not going to go over the context because I've been going over it for some time now in John chapter 14. You know where we're at. We're in the upper room with the disciples, with the 11. Today for us is Friday. So 2,000 years ago, this night, this evening, Jesus has already been crucified and he's already laying in the tomb. And I want to rewind a little bit and even go back to there in the upper room, even before the Garden of Gethsemane, and evaluate these words that Jesus said to his disciples when he was looking to the cross. And I want to ask a few questions. What did the death of Christ mean? What did it do? What did it really accomplish? Now, we can give a few answers just to begin. Yes, Christ Jesus came into the world, his very incarnation, to save sinners. The ultimate goal of the incarnation of Christ was to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that through his death, he might reconcile sinners to God. And we all know that the cross... It wasn't a mistake. It was the divine plan coming from the Father before time even began. Christ's sufferings were foretold by the prophets of old, by John the Baptist, by Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. What else did it mean? 
It meant that Christ's death redeems people from slavery to sin. And how was that accomplished? It was accomplished by him shedding his blood on the cross. A few verses to consider. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews 9.12, it was not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood that Christ entered the holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. On this very night that we're talking about, Jesus lifted up the cup and said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1.7, John writes, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Romans 3.25 God displayed Jesus publicly as a propitiation. Christ was able to purchase, ransom his people because his death appeased, satisfied the righteous indignation and wrath against sin. As Paul contemplated all that Christ's death meant to believers, Paul could only say, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul said, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all over the place. I skipped a few. We have all gathered here to hear of a bloody cross from the world's perspective, that would seem kind of odd, no? We've come to hear of a gruesome death of a man. Nails, torturing, brutality, suffocation, an unjust murder of an innocent man. Now, we know what it means to the world. It doesn't mean very much, and we were there at once. But we've all gathered to hear of those things because we know what the cross or the death of Christ means for us, and we're all confident of what it means for us. I imagine if I spent most of this time, maybe even all this time, talking about anything else other than the cross, maybe something else in the Bible, if I preached on that, I bet you 30 minutes through, if I had not mentioned Christ or the cross, I'd be getting some kind of eyebrows from each and every one of you. You come expecting to hear of Christ and him crucified because you know what the cross of Christ and his death on the cross means to you. But ponder this. What did the Lord's death mean to him? That's the better question. What did his death on the cross mean to him? We're going to see in these few short verses what, the, what Christ's death meant to him leading up to the cross. 
Now, in this passage, we're seeing that Jesus' closest friends, his 11 disciples, had spent a significant amount of time with Jesus, the most time with him. But even then, they still didn't grasp the full significance of his death. Now, I think we can give them a little bit of credit. Things are unfolding for them day in and day out. We're on this side of the cross. We're on this side of God's revelation to us. We're on this side of the cross, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We don't doubt that it happened. It happened. The canon is closed, and everything that we need to know about God is contained right here from Genesis to Revelation. And the disciples during this time, we know, they still had messianic misconceptions. They still had imagined in their minds that Jesus would come and he would overthrow Rome. He would restore Israel's sovereignty and glory all over again. They still had those expectations. Not only that, but the disciples were still selfishly expecting to have positions of authority in the future kingdom that Jesus had been mentioning. This is where the minds of the disciples were at. And the disciples were very slowly beginning to come to grips and understand what Jesus had been telling them all along. He often took the 12 aside many times and said to them, Matthew 20, for instance, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He was very clear in the events that were going to take place. And so here in John chapter 14, in those remaining verses, Jesus uses this opportunity to rebuke their lack of love for him and he calls them to view the cross from his perspective. He calls the disciples to view the cross from his perspective. And we're going to see three ways in these short verses. If you look there in chapter 14 and verse 28, he said to them, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. Their love for Christ is being challenged. Now, it is beyond question that Jesus loves the disciples. No one would refute that or even debate that. They love him, of course, but their love for him at this moment is imperfect. It's not as it should be. There's an argument here that Jesus is entering into with the disciples. If they had loved Christ as they ought to, they would be rejoicing that Christ is actually going to be going back to the Father, you see? If they loved him, if they were on board with the real plan of the Messiah, if they were thinking more of the glory of Christ rather than on their own, then they would be rejoicing that Christ would be able to return to the fullness of glory that he had experienced with the Father from all eternity. 
that Christ would be exalted to the Father's right hand, that he would be vindicated by the Father, that Christ would go to the end of his earthly mission, ministry, and accomplishing all that the Father willed him to do. Listen, church, Christ's crowning joy was to go back to the Father. That is what the cross meant to Christ. When he saw the cross, he saw it as an opportunity to go back to his Father. John 17 and verse 5 as he's praying to God in front of his disciples, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This was a time for the disciples to really shine and show a real love and understanding towards their Lord. 1 Corinthians 13 Love doesn't seek its own. And here, by definition, they are not loving Jesus as they ought to because they're more concerned about their own well-being than they are of the glory of their own Lord. They should be rejoicing that Christ was going to be able to gloriously be united back to the Father. That was his joy. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, I know you know it well looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was that joy? It was to go back to the Father. We, church, should share that joy. If the disciples are called to rejoice here, not knowing and understanding all that the cross meant, how much more should we rejoice in the exaltation of Jesus Christ now, knowing all that he accomplished and all that he did? We should love, we should rejoice every time we hear of Christ returning back to his Father. Any language of exaltation should excite us with such joy, it's overwhelming. And that is where we find our joy. Our joy in the Christian life is never upon our circumstances. Our peace, our joy is never on our circumstances. Our joy is rooted and it flows from always the joy that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Our joy comes down from that head. Our joy should be in God. And his joy is where? In himself. You want your joy to grow? You get to know him. If you're looking there in verse 28, he says, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I was going to skip this over, but I don't want to make anybody nervous because I know you're probably looking at it and maybe you get a little bit nervous. 
But because I've kind of set the context, I think it's very, very easy and simple to understand it in its context. And so I might just say something very quickly about it before I just go over it and someone maybe catches me after the sermon and says, how come you didn't say anything about a passage like that that has been really ripped out of context by all false religions over the centuries? Jesus nowhere in this discourse is talking at all about his nature as God. He has repeatedly put himself on the exact level of the Father in John's gospel over and over and over and over again. John 10, 30, John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. It goes on and on and on. You understand this? Jesus is, re, is talking about returning to where he came from. John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ had that face-to-face -face relationship with the Father, and then he came into the world. The Father didn't come into the world. Jesus came into the world. Listen to this. In his book, The Forgotten Trinity, James White says this, in context, Jesus is returning back to the place where he had been with the Father before. Jesus would no longer be walking the dusty roads of Galilee, surrounded by sickness, sin, and misery. He would no longer be attacked, attacked and mocked and ridiculed by the religious leaders. Instead, he would be at the right hand of the Father in heaven itself. Listen, so when Jesus uses the term greater, it speaks of the position of the Father in heaven over against the position of the Son in the earth. The Son had voluntarily, we just learned that in Philippians chapter 2 not too long ago, the Son voluntarily laid aside his divine prerogatives and humbled himself. He would soon be leaving this humbled position and return to his position of glory. That's all that that means. For the Father is greater than I. And the disciples should have known and loved Jesus enough to be overjoyed at this thought of their Lord returning to the Father. So the first thing that we see when Jesus viewed his death is that he would be going back to the Father. The second thing that we see when Jesus viewed his death, it would ultimately mean Satan's defeat. Look there at verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you much longer, for the ruler of this world is coming, yet he has no claim on me. the ruler of this world. And who's that? Satan. But how is it that Satan is coming right now? Luke tells us that Satan at this time had already entered into Judas to hand Jesus over to the executioners. Jesus already knows what's going on with Judas Satan has already entered into him, and he's already coming there in Gethsemane real soon, moments away, to arrest Jesus. This is no surprise to our Lord. 
He had been in conflict with Satan throughout the entirety of his ministry. Beginning when Jesus was just an infant, Satan prompting Herod to kill all male babies there born in Bethlehem. Jesus began his ministry, and what happens? He's immediately tempted by the devil. Satan is causing people to hate him. Demons are there to oppose his every move, trying to stop all of the work of Christ. Jesus faced satanic opposition his entire life, and I would say that he faced the strongest opposition that Satan and his demons could ever throw at him, but they were not successful. John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out when I am lifted up from the earth. That's technical language. Will draw all people to myself. And John writes in verse 33 that he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, Christ was saying that the ultimate defeat of Satan would be accomplished when he was lifted up on the cross. Jesus went to the cross knowing, knowing that that would be the final blow of Satan's power. If you look there in verse 30, he says, that the ruler is coming and he has no claim on me. It's literally, he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me to accuse as the great accuser, always there to find something, always looking, always probing, always trying to scheme to find something in somebody. There was nothing for the devil to try to find in Jesus to hook him on. We as sinners give opportunities for the devil to hook us all the time, do we not? Evil thought, and he hooks us. Lust, and he hooks us. Greed, and he gets us. Ungratefulness, he gets us. He's there to hook us any step of the way. But Satan has no power over a sinless man. He has nothing in me to accuse. He is powerless because I have no sin for him to hook me on. There's nothing there. In Luke chapter 22, the soldiers arrived to the Gethsemane and Jesus asked them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Satan had his hour, and it was the power of darkness. Listen, Jesus regarded his whole ordeal at the cross as a conflict with Satan. But Satan was here being allowed to bruise Jesus on the heel. But Jesus knew that he was there to fulfill 
all the scriptures, and he knew he was there to ultimately crush Satan's head. First John 3 eight says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus looked at the cross as a conflict with the devil, and he knew that he would be victorious. When we ask, what did Jesus' death mean to him? The third reason is that his love would be demonstrated. Verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Satan is not the reason for the cross. Right here, love is. The entire chapter in chapter 14 is one of love. We've been seeing that. Jesus said to the disciples, if you love me, what? You'll obey me. No one modeled that level of love like Jesus did to the Father. Nobody modeled perfect sonship like Christ did when he was here on earth. Jesus spoke often, very often, of his obedience to the Father. And we would conclude, obviously, it's because he loved him. And here, and only here in John's gospel, is it the first, one and only time that Jesus actually says it with his words. Obedience is always the fruit of authentic love. You remember when Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he says to John, you're going to baptize me. And what's John's response? There's no way I'm going to baptize you. My baptism is a baptism of repentance. You have nothing to repent of. And what did Jesus say to John? No, John, I must fulfill all righteousness. I must obey all that my Father has given me to fulfill. It is my delight to fulfill all of the righteousness that my Father has given me to do. You remember in John chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus said, It is my meat. It is my food to do the will of my Father. Jesus had no greater delight than obeying his heavenly Father. He was the perfect Son. One writer said that Jesus wanted to show the world his love for the Father, and he rejoiced at the opportunity for love is best shown in selfless, sacrificial service of the one who is loved. But that love was mutual, wasn't it? The son loved the father. We've seen that. He has shown it. He just said it. He proved it. And the father also loved the son. At his baptism, 
a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. At the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice from the cloud said the same thing. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You have to understand that that was only two opportunities, not for Jesus to hear those words, but for those around him to hear those words. Jesus had always heard those words. And you see the deep affection for one another that they had. Listen, this is what I want us to see in the remainder of our time. We will never understand the significance of the cross if we don't understand the exceeding preciousness and greatness of the Son's love for the Father and the Father's love for the Son. And when I want us to turn, lastly, to Romans chapter 8 to see this. Romans chapter 8. We're going to spend a few moments in verse 32. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. Throughout Jesus' ministry, throughout his life on earth, he had always experienced the love of his Father. There was never a time where he didn't have or live in the fullness of the love of his Father. Never a time. Now, I am not saying that on the cross, the Father stopped loving the Son. I am not saying that. But what I am saying, that something very dramatic happened, something very drastic happens on the cross that is very, very out of the ordinary for Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, and he is proving something to them. He is asking them the very, very simple question, and we can ask ourselves the same exact thing. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that God is for us? And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, and verse 32, gives his defense. This is how God loves you. And it is the greatest answer, I believe, in all of Scripture. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. We are seeing the Father's love we're now going to see a little bit of the son's worth, if we haven't already. And we're going to see wrath's curse in this very, very short verse. I'm not giving you another sermon here, I promise. Just stick with me here. On the cross, we are getting a spectacle of what's really going on. On the cross, as Jesus is dying very slowly, he is not hearing 
those very familiar words of love that he had always heard before. That he heard at the baptism, the Mount of Transfiguration, from start to finish, on the cross, he actually hears nothing for the first time. Jesus experienced the silence of abandonment. And we hear that and see that in his cry of dereliction when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the son experience that from the father? Because of wrath's curse. When you see the love of the Father and you see the worth of the Son and you see that he himself is not spared, you then see how terrible sin is in the eyes of God. So much so that the Father will not spare his Son because of it. And And what is so troubling is that Jesus was the least prepared being in the universe to endure that cross. To have his father's silence. It's very sad, church, that you and I can go hours, days, weeks, even months without feeling or sensing the presence of the Father, and sadly, sometimes we don't even notice it. Jesus had never not noticed his Father's presence. Why have you abandoned me? There's shock from Christ. Something he had never experienced before. Why? Because he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Isaiah 53. For it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You remember in Genesis chapter 22, when you hear Genesis chapter 22, you think of the sacrifice of, let's do it again. Genesis 22, you hear the sacrifice of, thank you. Listen to the similarities. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but listen to the similarities here. The Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac. Isaac, perplexed, and says to Abraham, Father, I 
I see the wood. I, I see the father. I see the, the fire. Where's the burnt offering? Where's the lamb? Abraham lays Isaac on the altar. He reaches out his hand and takes the knife to slaughter his son. And every father is just dying listening to that. It can't be. There's no way he's going to sacrifice his only son. But what's next? What happens? The angel of the Lord says, do not lay a hand on the boy. We can all breathe. He didn't do it. And it's a great ending to see the faith of Abraham and to see the love that Abraham, of course, had for Yahweh, but also had for his dear son, Isaac. And Abraham's love for his son pales, pales in comparison to the love that the father has for Jesus Christ. But on the cross, as Jesus is hanging there, there is no angel to stop the Father from crucifying the Son of his love. There on Mount Moriah is where what would be built? The temple. And for hundreds of years, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for the sins of the people would always look forward to a single sacrifice of the Messiah. You see the Father's love. You see the Son's worth. You see wrath's curse. And we ask ourselves, why? Why all of that? And if you look there in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, it's a prepositional phrase right there. For us all. You want to know, church, whether or not God loves you? Look at who he's given to you. He has not withheld the son of his love from you. We grow up listening to or knowing probably the most familiar verse in all of the Bible. What is it? John 3.16. For God so loved the world. What's the next? That he gave his one and only son. The extent of the father's love is seen in the extent of his giving.
Jesus Christ is not on the cross trying to get the Father to love the church. Jesus Christ is on the cross because the Father loves the church. And to finish in that passage in Romans 8.32, it is such an obvious question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When you see that the Father has given you his Son, the Son of his love, how can you not say, he will now give me graciously all things that I need? Dear friends, if any of you, any of you at all have not made a conscious decision to take up your cross, to follow after Christ, if you have not at this moment forsaken your life of sin and come to Christ for salvation, redemption, reconciliation, we as a church would pray that you do so while you still have time. We may not have another Easter for you to come and hear the same message that you may have been hearing for years now. we as a church would beg with you to believe with your whole heart that Christ Jesus came into the world, our world of sin, leaving his father to be born of a virgin so he wouldn't be stained by the same sin that we are born into. He lived a holy, perfect, righteous lifestyle one that you and I were called to do, but we never did, and we didn't even care. You and I, church, have sinned over and over and over to him. And the Bible says that the penalty, the wages of that sin is what? It's death. But Christ, out of love for his father and for his bride, as we just saw, willingly, joyfully, went to the cross to suffer the wrath of God that should have landed on you and it should have landed on me. And he was not spared. And he died, knowing all that he would take. He took on the sins of the world. And he went back to his father after being raised from the dead, which we're going to learn more about on Sunday so that on the cross he could cry out, it is finished. I have obeyed the Father. I've gone to the end. I've accomplished salvation, redemption, reconciliation by my blood, and I've obeyed the Father's will for my church. I'm going to end with this very short quote by Charles Spurgeon, who speaks of the joyful exchange between Christ and the sinner. Listen to these words, church. He says, he wore my crown, the crown of thorns. I wear his crown, the crown of glory. 
He wore my dress. Nay, rather, he wore my nakedness when he died upon the cross. Yet I wear his robes, the royal robes of the king of kings. He bore my shame, yet I bear his honor. He endured my sufferings to this end, that my joy may be full, and that his joy may be fulfilled in me. He laid in the grave that I might rise from the dead and that I may dwell in him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so thankful. for the love that you have shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. You did not spare the son of your love, but you gave him up. You delivered him up by your own counsel and will for the love of your people. You have shown us the same love that you have shown to your son. I pray as a church that you would not allow us to respond with any kind of indifference or apathy as your people towards the message of the cross of Christ. Allow your love to control us in every aspect of our lives. May you be glorified in every aspect of our lives as we show the love of the Father, as we act as citizens of your kingdom that you have bought us and you have placed us in to that glorious kingdom. You have substituted yourself, Christ, for us. Because you were forsaken by the Father, and heard silence, it's something that we will never, have never, will ever experience. All these truths, Lord, I pray that they would humble our hearts, that we would respond in love to you and love to one another. Father, may you be glorified. Son, we thank you for sacrifice that you made your life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And Holy Spirit, thank you for pointing us always to the beauty of Jesus Christ. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.